Welcome to the e-lounge. Our book on review this month is Africa Bounces Back, Case Studies from a Resilient Continent by Victor Homoiswana. No stranger to the media, Victor is an expert on business in Africa, a speaker, writer of the 2014 best-selling book, Africa is Open for Business. Insights and inspiration stimulate great conversation. In our e-lounge hosted by Tsepo Khobe, Chief Operating Officer at the Houghton Management Agency, engaging in leading opinions for your benefit. Please tune in to our YouTube channel to listen to more of South Africa's leading authors such as Professor Chilizima Rala, Mandalanga, Pepe Marais, and many more. This is one of our knowledge share platforms anchored in our values of learning and leadership. We do hope that you'll tune in, engage, take away the knowledge from this great conversation, and remember, those who desire to lead should read. After the rains had come and the festival of the mask was adorned as the celebration and Okonko mistakenly showed one of his fellow villagers, the tribal council decided to banish him out of town. Now Okonko took nine years of complaining in foreign lands and not returning back to his village. I remember the scene so clearly because it is what the author, Chinua Achebe, in Things Fall Apart, he says after that. He says, Okonko could have returned to his village a long time ago, but he was not personally ready. Now, when a man says yes, his chi says yes. Today's guest has to answer the question, is Africa ready? Because all our ancestors and everything he's written about says the stars are aligning. Everything is there. And our chi has said yes. Our ancestors and, and our whatever you believe in, be it the universe and your gods, have said yes as Africa. Now, are we ready? And as we review the book, Africa Bounces Back, the questions stood in, at the back of my mind with me asking it over and over again. Are we ready? Have we said yes? Because it looks like he's saying our chi has said yes. Today, I'm going to welcome one of the most diverse people I've ever, ever spoken to, Victor Khomeiswan, um, former school teacher, turned media personality, turned <laughs> consultant, and... Now, with two books in the, uh, behind him, we could add author to that. Victor, welcome. I have good to briefly see. just introduced you, but yeah. welcome. It's good to see you, man. It's good to see you again. Good to see you too, Victor. Victor, everybody is wondering, who is this man that could do so many diverse things? Yeah. Who is Victor Khomeisson? Oh, man. Okay, I, I, it's very hard to speak about myself. I'm rural. I'm from a village in Limpopo called Mashite, you know. I always say it's so remote that even if you lose your way, it's very unlikely that you'll end up there. It was so funny. It had an African's name called Zonernam. And okay. Zonernam means without a name or no name 
brand. So it, it is a village that I grew up in, and that's where I learned to read. Because when you grow up in a village, you look after sheep, you are heading cattle, you are heading goats. I was heading goats and, and sheep. And my father said, you can be a grumpy young man here, or you can learn to read. I learned to read. And, and I, I became a school teacher, yes. I used to teach biology and science. But I was that teacher that was so busy. Anything that was there to be done, I did. So I was an extramural guy. I did basketball, I did softball, I did music, I did drama. I even had a rap group when I was teaching in Guatemala. And I did everything. If, if, my theory was simple. People learn better when they play. So I encouraged that. And then that's how I ended up in the NGOs, doing enterprise education. And I ended up with the, two of the big four accounting firms, although I'm not an accountant. So I, I'm just a guy who believes in... I'm, I'm always crawling out. So I'm doing something, but I have an extramural interest that ends up becoming the main thing. So it's always just growing my comfort zone. So the, the media work and the presentation comes from when I was 13. No, when I was 11, actually. And I said, I, I, said I want to be a good speaker because I heard of Mark Antony's funeral speech in Julius Caesar, and they told me how he... And I said, this speech changed the course of history. I want to be that guy. And since I was 13, I was in a school debating team, and I represented my school. And every time I would go to the next level, there would be an opportunity to be a public speaker. When you're talking about stars aligning, you know, Wolfgang Goethe said, when you, when, you are, when you are committed, the universe conspires to help you. So I just found there was always an opportunity. When I got to varsity, I was on the SRC. When I got to teach, I was in Satu. So there was always something happening. And that's how eventually I was asked in 2002 to produce a daily program on African business. And I didn't know much about Africa as a continent. And I started reading, and that's how I got to Africa is Open for Business in 2013. And now Africa bounces back. As Africa bounces back, the question that has been niggling in everybody who sat in that chair lies in your formative years in your career. Yeah. The issue of education. Yes. And you raise it quite a, a number of times as we talk about, you know, the uh, Millennium Development Goals and now of lately the SDGs yeah. yes. as being one of the key issues, not only in affecting, you know, better work and also affecting health, mm -hmm. but you, you raise it quite a lot. Yeah. Now, I've had, you know, the esteemed Prof. Marwala in that chair. Yes. And we spent quite a lot of time having this conversation. Now, and I'm not going to argue with you as yet. Mm -hmm. the, the question that I want to raise for you is Africa's very dispersed and disparate uh, uh, education system ready for the Africa's Continental Free Trade Agreement? Yes. Because it is different. And so you will have to first overcome that. Yes. And that's the beauty of it, Seppo, the diversity. You're talking about disparate entities that make up Africa. That's the excitement about it. In fact, diversity is what we should embrace. You, I know you, you are an engineer by training, so you'll understand the strength of an alloy versus a pure metal is that an alloy is diversified. It's much stronger. Steel is much stronger because it mixes a lot of metals and non-metals. So the diversity of Africa is exactly the reason there will never be 
any boring session. If you are educating people about Africa, where do you start? The Maasai of, of Kenya? Do you go and talk to the Mzanakis of Tanzania? Do you go and talk to the Yoruba of Nigeria? Do you go talk to the Zulus? Or do you go... I mean, it's just on the tribal diversity, you've got a lot. The languages, thousands of languages and their dialects. The lifestyles. You've got tropical, you've subtropical, you've equatorial climate, you've got biodiversity. So it's exactly that. That's the reason as Africa, when everybody else is over the hill, Africa will still be there. You saying Africa will still be there. And this I heard from you too. Yeah. In one of your, 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 your sessions when you were chairing one of the sessions at Gallagher State, you said one of the sayings in Africa is Youth that do not give their blood to their country <laughs> must leave it to the dogs. Yeah, it's a Kinyarwanda Kinyarwanda proverb. That proverb, yeah. it's still stuck with me for a very long time yeah. that if we're not willing... Now, that lies also at the core that this youth that we have, this potential, yeah. and you understand science better, potential is just the, the it likeliness. Follow. It doesn't follow. You need you kinetic know? energy. As, yeah. as they say, you know, yeah. uh, uh, what do they call it? Uh, 25 bucks and potential still gives you just a meeting. But <laughs> you're, right. you're right. You're right. <laughs> yes. and, and that's where leadership is so important. Leadership, mm -hmm. not political leadership, and not even position. You know as a leader in corporate world that your role is most accomplished and most fulfilling when you show people possibilities. And that's why in the book, this one, and Africa is open for business, I'm always getting case studies of people who are making it work. Because until you've shown people that there are possibilities, you can't lead them. Now, you, you are saying that, and I, I, I'll still argue it out, that never had a generation that was so close to information yeah. been a group of people that actually do not read, do not research, mm -hmm. And do not actually go out there to find out what is going on. Yeah. Uh, you know the old adage, um, if you want to hide anything for an African, uh, put it in a book. Yeah. Um, they will never go looking for it. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and I still stand that education, and I'll get to the next question that is there. Education and this youth that we have, mm. this bulging youth that we have, uh, which is our potential, it's just purely potential. It, you know, knowledge is also not just book knowledge. It is. Indigenous knowledge actually is much more powerful because it resonates with people on a cultural, sociocultural level. So, I mean, you saw it with COVID yes. that, you know, here's a pandemic nobody has ever seen. Nobody has the cure for it. Nobody has the vaccine. Yes. And then, but we're told, hey, wait a minute, the symptoms of this are the same as the symptoms for some flu infections and malaria yes. So we know for a fact that Lengana, which is Valdeals uh, in Afrikaans, can cure some of these symptoms, not the disease, but the symptoms. Hey, after all, medication in the main treats symptoms, not the disease. But we were so reluctant to listen to that until the Max Planck Institute in Germany said, in fact, this Lengana works to handle the symptoms. But... What, what does that tell you? We underestimated our own indigenous knowledge. When you undermine indigenous knowledge, you're suggesting that all the generations of Africans never had any knowledge of anything until book knowledge was there. 
Book knowledge although helps because it makes the knowledge portable and more transferable and it records it and makes it easier to resolve disputes in the future. But I'm, when I talk about knowledge, I'm talking more about indigenous knowledge and the, the most fulfilling time I have is when I'm in my village and I sit with the oldies. Because you know what the oldies will do? The people that, that don't even read. My mother is 87. She can't read. But she will ask me questions that will humble me. Now, as a teacher, if you ask me a question and I can't explain to you until you understand, I don't judge you as an, a disabled learner. I see it as a reflection on my inability to teach. And that's where the youth can only go as far as we, the adults, guide them and allow them to challenge us. And that's why I'm sure you know that this book, I have a young man, Lesejo, who decided he's, gonna, he's not going to write a 450-page book. He's going to rap about it. And when I listen to his rap song, Africa Bounces Back, he asks the very critical questions. How many times has Africa... He actually even asks the point you're making. It's always potential. How many times have we been told that Africa is the future? How many times? How many... So you see now, that's the language the young people will understand. Now, when you speak to them in the language that resonates with them, they come at you with more questions. They're going to challenge you again. They're going. Remember, when you're young, you're exuberant. You think you know it all. And that's exactly where the teaching must come in. Adults are not impatient with exuberant youth. They embrace them. So I agree with you. Reading is not a favorite pastime of young, young people in my country, at least, South Africa. But maybe it's because we package it in thick books like this. And we never say, young people, take this and tell us what it means to you. And once we have done that, we can travel together and write the book and co-develop the knowledge. I like the idea of wanting to travel together. And I want to go back to the issue of, of, of knowledge systems, yes. uh, Af indigenous African knowledge systems, because it, it is an important issue and it has come up when we were speaking about 4IR <laughs> and a whole lot of other things and, and a whole lot of areas that are shown that we already have the science. Yes. It's just that it's not packaged in a book form. Yeah. Um, and, and when you undermine it, sorry, I'm interrupting you. When you undermine it, you're doing exactly what colonial oppression was trying to do, that there's no worth in Africa. So when, so and then, then that's out. when men who are going to hunt, men who are going to, they've got to be out and gone. Mm -hmm. Those, crow, the, the roosters are always going to crow at the same time, yeah. you know. So, yes, we might not be marking time to seconds, but a man, an African man knows if he was late for hunting, yeah. he was not going to catch anything and his family was going to starve. So when somebody is late, I say, hey, Seppo, you are late. I don't say that's African time because it's an insult to say that. So the minute we change our attitude towards indigenous knowledge and understand that it's just, it carries as much value. The only difference is it doesn't get documented. It doesn't have royalties. That's why people try to steal the lion sleeps and, and change Mbube to the lion sleeps because they think if it's not written, people don't know it. And people will shame you if you reduce knowledge to book knowledge because they will ask you questions that your book knowledge cannot answer. Now, I will come back when we talk about ICT and other they call it, to indigenous knowledge systems because there, there is issues that have been asked about this and I myself is grappling with that yeah. um, because our documentation of our African knowledge systems um, has to go into the 4IR level, but yes. we're not yet there. Yeah. Now, before we get there, let's start in the beginning. Mm -hmm. King Leopold II travels through Africa. 
from the south to the north. And then you want to break my heart right now. <laughs> and <laughs> when he returns to what they call it, to Europe, he brings together what eventually becomes the Berlin Accord. Yeah. Africa get cut up. And there's an important thing that King Leopold puts in his report back. If you dig down, deep down, he says, those people out there are not short of anything. Mm -hmm. And, but, and we, there is nothing that we can offer them to take away the things they have. Yeah, except. But they do not know, except if you take away their culture. Yeah, exactly. Now, that's his report. Yeah. Now, in, in, in a, a, a systematic system or, or a systematic way of undoing African knowledge system and mm. African culture mm. then comes up. Because the, the cutting up of Africa into colonial blocks mm. was not the worst part of the undoing. Mm. It was the, 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 the undoing of the belief in what they call it. Yeah. As we talk about Lingana and yeah. Artemisia and, 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 and all of that, yes. it is that, that undoing. Now, and, and undoing the way of enforcing discipline. How did King Leopold enforce discipline in the rubber plantations? Yeah. I mean, he humiliated men. And, and today we talk about gender-based violence and femicide. Men using their physical strength on the weaker members of their family. Yeah. So let's go back. During apartheid days, what did... Our fathers and uncles do. They were being kicked around. They were washing toilets and they were dehumanized. They get home. The only time they know when to be a man is when they're at home and they can enforce their strength by abusing because they are learning ways of abuse from the people who help them to earn an income. King Leopold's men were humiliating men in the DRC, in Burundi, in Rwanda, in ways that you can never imagine. I mean, from just being whipped in front of your kids to being killed because you did not meet your quota for rubber production. So it's, it's those kinds of things that you now undo the culture. Then you teach people that if you want to be holy, you've got to have... I mean, I grew up when you needed to have a Christian name. Mm -hmm. I could never go to school with a name like Tsepo. I needed to have what they call a Christian name. So you could not be Christian and have a name like Sepo, it didn't work. Or Nkateko, or Mikateko, or Sbusiso. It doesn't matter that those names are actually very holy. Yeah. No, you could not be holy. And then, So you unteach them, so you dismantle their values, and then you disorganize them by linking whatever they do to a commodity. That if something doesn't make you money, then it's not worth it. So one, you say they are worthless. Two, you say the only way you are valued is when you make money. So what do you hear when our peers say, ah, I go to the village and we are organizing a funeral and this auntie who doesn't contribute anything wants to speak. And I'm thinking, wait a minute. So the only elder that's allowed to speak is the one that has money. What has that done? It has taught us that money is everything. So we eventually walk away from our values and then we get surprised why nothing adds up. Now, let's get to one of Africa's greatest opportunities, mm. which is one of the things that get taken out by yeah. that process. Mm. Agriculture. Right. Africa could feed itself. Yeah. And Africa could always be able to, to, to feed itself. Yes. Now, when we look at it and, and, and we look at how, in essence, and that's probably in the later 20s, uh, 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 that chapter. So, yeah. It, it, chapter 22. Yes. Yeah. Um, I still have that my memory, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even at my yeah. age, <laughs> oh my goodness, it still functions. I'm impressed. So, so yeah, 
So in essence, when you take that away, mm. you've also taken away the ability of the African to yes. be able to feed himself. Yes, you have. And, and Africa is the most arable land. I yes. mean, in the stats here, I show you that of all the arable land of the world, the bulk of it is in Africa. And it's not even used optimally because we don't use fertilizer. And I'm not talking nitrogen, ammonium nitrate. I'm talking organic fertilizer. We're not even using the right technology. We don't use tractors. So productivity is still low on the continent. But we, you can plant anything. You, you, the shame is when you're in the DRC and you see over 60 million people and how much they import food. And you realize, but in the DRC you can plant anything without needing, you know, when you see rainbow chickens here in South Africa and there are farms in, in Howick, in KZN, all the irrigation in the DRC becomes irrelevant because the rainfall figures are so high that you would literally throw any seed in the ground, it would grow. Those, that igneous soil will just make sure everything is fertilized. But you take it away, and even if you are producing anything, lots of Africa's land, and this is the tragedy of colonialism, Lots of Africa's land has been taken over by cash crops, tea, coffee, things that get exported in their raw commodity format, so they are sent to be produced elsewhere. Cocoa in, the, in, in Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana and Nigeria and Cameroon is getting exported. Now we are getting the, the short end of the stake because we are exporting commodities on the land that could be producing a lot more, and we are importing chocolate and the intellectual property. So... The essence of the agriculture is understanding, one, we could be the food garden of the world. Number two, we could then build downstream all these agricultural products, and then beneficiation will build our economy the way it should. That building downstream. Yeah. But in essence, we also have to build upstream. For sure. Uh, if you think of what now is referred to as the cocoa cartel. Yeah. As, you know, if anything... They're calling agree. it a cartel, but they call OPEC, OPEC. Yes. You see how it works? I mean, that's messed up thinking. But anyway, let's leave it. Let's leave it at yeah. that. But, but eventually, even in the past, the, the oil cartels, that's what they were called. But now, it's the formulation and the formalizing of mm. the... Now, when you look at that coast, the yeah. West Coast itself, coming yeah. all the way from Abidjan um, down to, what do they call it? To, to, to Cameroon. To Cameroon. Yeah. Now... In essence, that whole area has the ability to can produce cocoa. Yes, and it, it is producing more than 65% of the world cocoa. Think about it. Yes. Four countries, in fact two, Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, produce more than 60% of the world cocoa. Just take Just a bow when you eat chocolate, will you? And say, thank you, Ghana, thank you, Cote d'Ivoire. If you add Nigeria and Cameroon, you have probably over 70%. What they were doing with this, what is called the cartel, all they said was, we are exporting this to Switzerland, to the U.S., to whatever, and we, one, want to get a good price for our farmers. So they were looking for fair trade. And they said, if we don't get it, we will hold back the production until we get a fair price. And guess what? Two weeks ago, there was a story that an American company will be buying all of that at the price that's almost three, four times what the farmers were asking for. So you think it's cartel mentality? No, it's actually fair trade. But better than that, Seppo, is that there is a factory now in, in, in Cote d'Ivoire, Samoa. It's a French company that's manufacturing chocolate. So I'm liking the fact that not only are they saying, let's get a fair price for our inputs, but let's also get the industrialization. 
uh, and getting coffee, uh, cocoa, uh, chocolate production on our doorstep. Because you get more jobs that are better paying. But most of all, you also get your education system to study, including biotechnology, food technology, food processing, and all those kinds of things, which is better for the economy at large. I met a young man down here in Santin uh, when I was still in consulting, and he was telling me he's looking to import rice, yeah. maize, oil, and, and everything else into the DRC. Yeah. Now, I found that quite strange. That's how bad it is. In, 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 in a place that has that much water, yeah. rice should be one of those things that are easy to plant. Very. Um, and, 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 and Six now, months of rainfall. Six months of rainfall in the DRC. They, they, they say to you, you bring your 4x4 four four here, it goes missing when rain is gone. And, and they're not exaggerating. Nigeria, before it became an oil economy, was an agricultural economy. Yes, each one of the, the, the economies in Africa yeah. were all agricultural yeah. economies. Now, I can see the green shoots from what do they call it, from, from yeah. Cocoa. Yeah. I can see the green shoots from now Ilovo operating in Malawi and, the, you know, starting to... Cashew be nuts in Tanzania. Tanzania yes. Remember the late John Magufuli was called a dictator when he said, give the cashew nut farmers the right price. Same deal. Now there's a price that is being offered to those farmers that is much, much better and a lot more dignified. But I go back to my question of the youth that will not give their blood to their own countries. Because yeah. agriculture at the current moment, yeah. how do we, for lack of a better phrase, yeah. how do we make it sexy? And, 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 and yes, you've got the green shoots here in South yeah. Africa from Ntutuko uh, Shwezi and, yeah. and the logic of him going into farming without going into farming. That's to, it. Uh, uh, um, but... How do we speak more about these, what do they call it, the, well, these we, examples? We have to show them the value and we have to give them the history. Let's not be lazy to teach history. And again, I'm not saying history the way we were taught, where you would memorize the date of the arrival of Jan van Riebeek and the, the, date, the starting date of World War. Ask the people what the significance of the World War was. Ask the people the significance of the Berlin Conference. Ask the significance of the slicing of the continent, the way it is. And then show them where the food production of the world is and where the consumption is. That we are still, even under the unsophisticated farming regime that we are in, we're still producing a lot of the, the bulk of the coffee, cocoa. The, you know when you're in Europe, you, you, you buy a freshly cut flower. One out of three will be from Kenya. So we, we've got to give them the facts and show them that there is money in this thing. There is value. Secondly, we've got to give them the history that this is how your great-great-grandfathers raised us. So if they did not know farming, I would not have been born. And that way, even if you don't love farming, pay respect for it. And if you don't want to do farming, like I like to share this example, because he says, I don't want you to be running after cattle. But because you know the cultural value of cattle in African culture, give me your money, I'll get you the calf before it's born, and I will reinvest it for you. But I'll go and get the farmer who knows how to rear cattle and hire him to do it for you, and all you have to do is to put your money. So you don't have to necessarily be wearing khaki shorts and running after cattle, but appreciate the value. Once we have done it, we have made it sexy enough. And then let's make the regime justifiable. Let's prioritize fair trade. Let's not see Africa as the commodity farm where we 
come and source the commodities, send them to Rotterdam in, 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 in the Netherlands, distribute everything, and then we package them in chocolate and we import chocolate from Switzerland when they don't have any cocoa production in there. So th that is how I... But we also have to find a way of creating education in, in the schools. And by the way, there's a young lady in Nigeria called Afion Williams. Yes. Is the, in fact, she's the only person who features in my book, Husband and Wife, yes. because she is in a company, agriculture company called Real Fruits. Yes. They provide snacks, nuts, and dried fruits to airlines, and her husband is in fintech. So they, they, but she was here. She went to Rodin here in Johannesburg, and then in 2011, she just told me she's going back to Nigeria. I said, what does a Rodin-educated, U.S.-schooled, young Nigerian urbanite want to do in Nigeria? Everybody's walking away from Nigeria. She said, I'm going into farming. I said, you must be kidding. She said, I'm being serious. In South Africa here, I'm starting to see farmers like Spewers Tolle, yes. like, uh, what's the name, uh, Ethel, Ethel Zulu Mukwele. Yeah. I, know, I know people like... Uh, I'll give you a name now. She's a wine producer from, from Attridgeville, yeah. uh, Pelly Wines, you know, Muya yeah, Habo. Mm. And in, in, the Cape, in the Western Cape, Nondumiso Pikache. These are people who are in agriculture. They might not be wine producers, as in farmers, but they're already showing you. So show the people the entire value chain of agriculture. Don't create the impression that agriculture means you are sitting in the field, because it's not for everybody. Just like the city is not for everybody. Now... Unless you have worked with all these spaces that you raise in the book, yeah. it's very complicated for you to connect the dots. Yes. And, yes. I, and I'm hoping by the time the two hours is, yeah. is finished, we, yeah. we've connected the dots. And, yes. and I, I want to move out of that and get into the value of transportation. Yes. And transportation in particular, in, with us going from, you know, yeah. agriculture itself. Yeah. And having been in, in consulting, I mean, there was a time when we, we I worked on the on the Moatis project mm -hmm. um, in, in Mozambique when we were looking at building an alternative line yes. uh, to take coal out of what do they call it yes. out of Moatis yes. uh, and build a new port. Yes, uh, because the the client at that point in time felt that the line that Valley uses that. Uh, crosses over Malawi, mm -hmm. uh, creates sovereign risk because you're going through two countries. Yes. And if anything happens there, you the are... Nakala, the Nakala, the, the Nakala line is yes. what they call it. Now, yeah. having known, and, and I also worked on other projects in North Africa where we were trying to take uh, uh, um, coal out of places like Kamoa and, mm -hmm. and, and, and what do they call it, and, and iron ore and all of that. Right. Now, logistics in Africa are difficult. Yes, it's a nightmare. It's a nightmare. The, the cost of importing and exporting is a nightmare. Yes. And it makes us uncompetitive. So and when, when yeah. Dabon speaks about the cost of doing business, yeah. and he raised it years back, yes. now, we didn't understand what he meant. But you are seeing an opportunity in Africa not having infrastructure. It's a backlog. Okay. So when you have a backlog, you have an opportunity. You know the old riddle, the, the, the story about man lands on a, on a, in a country selling shoes and he realizes people don't wear shoes. One of them says, I'm going back because these people don't even know what shoes are. So I'm going back. I can't sell shoes. The other one looks and says, okay, they don't wear shoes. The way Saul Kesner built Sun City, if you built it, they'll come. So teach them to wear shoes then. 
and you see an opportunity. So backlog, because that's how we are going to attract investment into the continent and capital investment, not consumption investment. So we're going to be attracting lots of the building of the ports because there's now Africa continental free trade area, which is another chapter in yes. the book. That calls for us to build infrastructure. Isn't Robex building the, the improving the Bait Bridge infrastructure yes, to create lanes that will be for passenger vehicles, lanes that will be for trucks, and lanes that will be for buses, just so that the smooth running at the border post is improved. So yes, at the moment, that is a downside, but every year, you, you are from the How train, right? Before the How train, it was a nightmare driving from Johannesburg to Pretoria and back. Now, if you know the How train, you, you, you know just how easy it has made life. So every one of the gridlocks that we have at the ports, at the harbors, at the airports, will be an opportunity for investment. The beauty is we have the African Development Bank. We have our own African banks here that can invest in that and in so doing, keep the economy growing. And we will be able to have the upside of the next 50 years. I want to bring an issue here on the DFIs. Right. The DFIs are educated on methods that are used in America by the, you know, uh, the city banks and everything yeah. else. Yeah. And they judge African banks based on, you know, MBAs and whatever yeah. they've learned from yeah. wherever they've learned. Uh, Development finance institutions. D yes, DFIs themselves do not as yet think in, 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 in that way, in, in the sense of them being able to see the backlog being an opportunity. I think the African Development Bank has moved that, moved a bit far. Even the Development Bank of Southern Africa is, is started to see that. The IDC okay. itself here in South Africa has invested a lot in the DRC. I remember going there and the governor then of, of Katanga province getting emotional, talking about how the IDC, the Industrial Development, had funded a 34 kilometer, a stretch of 34 kilometers of road. And he said, you know, that 34 kilometers of road cut travel time from two months to two hours. Yes. And, and I thought, that can't be serious. I want to go and see this road. And I drove on it. It was an ordinary road. I say to these Congolese, I say, so how do, how do you take two months traveling 34 kilometers? They said before, because when it rains here, your 4x4 four four is going to go missing. That's why I had the, that expression. That you, you, you will not lose your way. You'll not get a puncture. You'll just be buried in sludge. So it's that kind of backlog that I'm talking about. Before January 2020, Africa, the, the airport in, the, in, in, in Ethiopia, Bola International yeah, Airport, International. was nothing. People didn't even know about it. It's the largest now. Now, Rwanda is wanting to build another one. DRC, Ethiopia wants to build another bigger airport in Ethiopia again. And that's how it managed to replace Dubai as the gateway to the continent. Aligo Dangote is, is, is involved in Nigeria in a lot of the refinery project. Yes. And that on its own it contributes to the Ibadan Corridor. That is going to join everything from, if you like, Equatorial Guinea to, to Mauritania the road and rail infrastructure. Every time there is a backlog and you put your heads together and you get the right kind of capital, patient capital, you are able to build the infrastructure. And around the infrastructure, if you live in a rural area like I did, you know when you build a road, property market 
takes up because you need filling stations along the road, you need car washes along the road, you need restaurants, you need stopovers, and people start building universities and, and, and. So it's that kind of backlog that makes me excited because I know we can only get better. Everywhere we go, things can only get better for us. That's the bouncing back that I'm talking about. But here lies CPI ratings for each of when you start talking money, we gotta come yeah. back to the uh, 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 the yeah. corruption perception index. Yes, yes. Um, and, yeah, yeah. And, and here lies the what they call it. The, 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 probably what uh, inadvertently uh, 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 Tabo was referring to when he spoke in I'm an African, the pestilential mosquito. Yes. That that I fear to whether or not agree it's part of Africa or not. Yeah, and I I fear mosquitoes like uh, nothing. I, and, I and 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 this you know it's the buzz that sits in the background yes. every time you start talking money. It is. And with our CPIs uh, sitting where they are, th there's a difficulty of trying to move this machine. There is. The question is, again, let's talk mathematics yes. here. Corruption is an equation. Okay. What do we say in an equation? That, that sign in between says equal yes. to. So on the left-hand side, on the right-hand side, the equality sign. The... Often when we talk about corruption, we look at the corrupt politician okay. who's asking for a bribe. And we never ask, where is this money being paid from? The willing buyer will Yes, sell. the willing buyer willing sell. <laughs> and I'm not excusing corruption. I am saying let's understand it in its totality. Last week, Seppo, last week, a state bank in Germany was fined, uh, something like 150,000 euros. For financing to the tune of 50 million euros, the company owned by Isabel dos Santos. Yes. Now, you know, Isabel dos Santos is the former richest woman in Africa, the daughter of the former president of Angola. Oh, yeah. The company she was funded by a German state owned bank via another state entity in Angola to finance her company. But here is the funniest part about this corruption story, and that's why I'm reluctant to reduce it to an African phenomenon. The company, Isabel Dos Santos' company, was buying equipment from a German supplier. Now, come on. Yep. I hate corruption. But I hate it even more when people who are talking corruption about my continent are enabling it. Do you know that the billions and billions that were stolen from this continent by people like Sani Abacha, people like Mubuto Sesaseko, were banked in Swiss banks? And this was not an accident. The United Nations, United Nations had tried and failed to get Switzerland to ask people when they put money in their banks, where did you get the money? Know your customer, Right. They refused. Those banks refused. Only recently, in the past 10 years, have they been repatriating the money. So what I'm trying to say to you is, the enablers of corruption, yes, are politicians who are so insensitive and not caring about their people to the point they are happy to steal from them. But I'm saying, who opens their purse and say, I want to pay a bribe, or I'm willing to pay a bribe? It's people who are building roads, people who are building schools, 
Now, for as long as business is willing to not compete on Tsepo as the better opposition proposition and better price, he must win the bid. And if he wins, I will stand back and I hope to subcontract to him. We are not going to solve the corruption problem. But of course, you get a country like Malawi, Lazarus Chakwera, the new president. He's not messing around with corruption. So I'm not exempting African politicians. Hichilema in Zambia, he's not playing when it comes to corruption. The late John Magufuli was not playing on corruption. I really weep the fact that's why there's a chapter dedicated yes. to him in the book. Because the I think he was so misunderstood. You look at even Abe Ahmed, for all the problems he has in Tigray, he has done so much to correct what is wrong with that country and that we must give him credit for it. I'm not happy with what he's doing in Tigray, but I don't understand the problem. Before. So what I'm trying to say is there are many countries in Africa that are already demonstrating Ghana. If you look at what's happening in Ghana, Nana Akufo-Addo is not playing with corruption. So let's look at this. Liberia, George Weah, the former footballer of the year, the only African to win the Ballon d'Or. Mm -hmm. He has become a president of Liberia. And last week he signed a deal with ArcelorMittal that's going to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars into that country and improve the steel production for the next 20, 25 years. So I, let's fight corruption, but to fight it, let's understand it better. And let's define the mechanics of it and the economics of it. That's why I wrote about the business of piracy in the book. I, I hear you, but let me ask you a question. Yeah. The Madiba movement, never again. Yes. And now I sit there and I say the so-called Africa's gateway. Yeah. Uh, the, the, uh, the, the, the gateway to Africa. Yes. And I lament that advert where Tabumbegi stands on the mountain and he goes... Yeah. Allah, South alive Africa, with alive with possibilities. Are we still yes. alive with possibilities? We are, we are. I'm encouraged by about South Africa where we are right now. I mean, I'm annoyed that it's t we are slow. I'm very annoyed that we are slow. But I'm encouraged that at least we won't be going back to the stuff that we saw 10 years ago. We won't go back there. It's not going to happen. But... I also don't want to believe that South Africa should be the gateway to Africa. Why? If you're in Europe and you want to invest in Morocco, why should you use South Africa as the gateway? So South Africa could be the gateway to some of the SADC countries. Of course, we have better infrastructure than most of them. We have better institutions than most of Africa. We have better banks than most of Africa. So in that, in that sense, yes, we can still be the gateway. Companies can still be registered here. But there's no sense whatsoever, Tsepo, that if you are a Chinese company and you want to invest in Ethiopia, you should base yourself in South Africa. Well, that's exactly the problem that was created by urbanization, the urban sport, where you put everything in one small part instead of developing the entire continent. But part of the reason we lost that grip uh, that, that, uh, that commanding lead was that we were so pompous and so complacent because we had the world's famous statesman in Madiba and we felt we couldn't get it wrong. We got it wrong on many occasions, including ICT, including ICT, which is a key, key determining factor whether you succeed in this new fourth industrial revolution or you fail. Now, we are sitting in a very interesting space at the current moment with the Zondo Commission unraveling and, you know... It's taking uh, too long. It, it is taking too long. Um, and costing too much money. 
You, you, you look at what Lorenko did in, what do they call it? <laughs> exactly. In, 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 in That's Angola. That's my dude, Jane uh, Ho in, in Angola. In, in, yes, in, in Angola. He knows what's wrong. Charge the person. If you can't convict him, leave him alone. Okay. So now, do you think we're going about this the right way? No, we're not. Commissions? No, we're not. That's what I'm saying. Joao Lorenko was, was, he replaced Eduardo dos Santos mm -hmm. in three months. He said, well, wait a minute, Isabel dos Santos, you are the former, daughter of the former president. How are you the chairperson of Sonango? Yeah. Sonangoli is like Petro SA times 10 mm. because of the size of the business. So why are you the chairman of this? Removed her. Her brother, Filomino, mm. was the head of the sovereign fund of Angola. That's where the money from the oil and everything was supposed to go. You know, the, the Norwegian state, state fund, yes. the sovereign fund, is the largest investor in the world. They were moving in that direction. And he said, but you can't be the son of a former president and be dominating this. He removed him. Mm. The daughter was also somewhere with the, with the wife and they were doing some business with the state public broadcaster. He removed them. And then he said, I'm charging you. Some he convicted and already Filomino has done jail time. Yes. This man has not been in power for 10 years. He's not even in power for eight years, but he has already acted so decisively. That's what I want to see. That's where we're getting it wrong in South Africa. We prioritize unity in the ruling party over expediency. So when people come and loot because they were misled, we start calling them names. They are savages. If I'm hungry and I'm unemployed and somebody says we can go and get some food from there, I'm going to do it. Without justifying looting, that was just an example of what will happen if we don't get income inequality right in this country. Our Gini coefficient is quite high. It's still one of the highest. Um, and if and you're in Johannesburg, uh, Cape Town, you see it even more. Because you are driving on M1. On the right, you've got Alex, yes. where the bulk of people are staying. On the left, you have Santanis. We even proudly call it the most expensive, the richest square mile in Africa. Well, what does it mean if you've got so many people across Alex who could one day rise up again? We even built a bridge, a walkway for them to walk from Alex. But no, they'll only look at what is happening in Santon. They'll only work there. They don't have schools where their children can go when they're in Santon. So that income inequality means we learn when we build a Santon, when we build a Leonardo, yeah. We must have schooling for poor children there so that the people who work in the Leonardo, the tallest building in Africa, can have their children drop them off on Maud Street, go up and work, and when they finish, they can pick up their children and go home. No, we want to fence off a place and call it a rich suburb, and then we push the workers 45 kilometers away from where they work. What do they do? They spend 40% of their income on transport. They arrive home at 9 when their children have slept. They leave home at 4 when their children are sleeping. And then we say, but parents can't be involved in their school, the education of their children. How can you get involved when you leave home at 4 and you arrive at 9? Now, I like this idea because mm. our purpose as a company mm. is transforming spaces, people, and the economy through mobility. Yeah. That is the purpose of the Gauteren Management Agency. When are you finishing the Soweto link, man? <laughs> we will get there. <laughs> now, now the, 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 I like the idea you're raising now because mm. one of the things that if you look through a lot of my uh, uh, LinkedIn and a lot of my posts in order to call on social yeah. media, mm. I am talking about this, is creating transport into a lifestyle product yeah. where at a station you can actually be able to 
you know, drop off your kid in school, yeah. um, you know, the second older one in high school, and then you have a boutique university. And have there. clinics that when I'm yes. sick, I'm working in waterfall, I can walk to the clinic. Yes, and, and, and also we, we will, the intent is for us to commercialize a lot of our hubs, mm -hmm. but do it intentionally as yeah. us as the health train yeah. uh, management agency rather than um, letting it happen organically like it has happened in yeah. Santin and has happened in, 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 in Rosebank. Mm -hmm. Now, I actually like this idea because it then builds us up to the point where that is not a one of our, our strongest point as what it's they not call our it, strongest point. As, 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 as Africa. We, no. we were never, we, we love building things far yeah. and then figuring out how to connect them together. You, you know transport economics. You yes. know, they, you build the roads and the railroads first and you build the cities. Yes. Here we do it the other way around. We build a city or the city develops on its own and we say, oops, and then we say we need a road. I mean, I, I saw I can mention names, yes. right? Yes. Copper leaf. Yes. Copper Leaf, a beautiful estate in, in Centurion. If you saw the road that was driving to that, it was horrible. But you can see, man, nobody said, hey, what is the road that's going to... So here's a beautiful estate with beautiful houses, wonderful people living there. But when they're driving, it's like they might be out in Katutura or someplace. <laughs> it's, it's not going to work. So, in fact, in the chapter about infrastructure backlog here, yes. I quote a very clever... A scholar, South African scholar, Chile Zirachitanga, who, who wrote a book called New Cities, New Economies. And he talks about not only building the infrastructure like you're doing, I like what you're doing with the Soweto link, by the way, because you're going to relieve the pressure on the M1 side, the Gold Reef City side. But he's saying build the companies where the people live so that you have the multiple use. So Melrose Arch should not be an exception. It should be the norm but it should be everywhere. People should live here, work there, educate, play. That way you don't waste too much money. When they get into the transport, it's a lot easier because there's no rush from one side coming into the same and going out the same time because it, it affects the stress levels negatively. It creates a lot of security problems because then people leave their homes unattended, crime increases, and then they, and vice versa. So, I'm saying we're not doing it as deliberately as that, but because we have to, we are fixing the plane while it's moving, yes. I'm happy with whatever constructive intervention. And that's why the infrastructure I like. When I see Robex building Bait Bridge or improving, when I see Chirundu border post between Malawi, uh, Zambia and Zimbabwe becoming a one-stop border post, when I see the Maputo Corridor Logistics Initiative, when I look at Bole International Airport, or any infrastructure development, I rejoice because I know you can never go wrong if you improve the infrastructure. It might not be the best, but the minute you identify logistics, infrastructure, spatial planning go together, you will get somewhere. And, and I mustn't be negative. Even in South Africa, there are many projects that are happening that are going to make that infrastructure game a lot more attractive. Now, with us doing all of that, COVID shows up. Ah, yeah. Um, and when COVID shows up, I mean... Our the gods must be crazy. Yes. <laughs> our numbers at the current moment are sitting at 20% uh, of what it used to be uh, pre-COVID. Mm. It's a challenging business to run yeah. um, as we sit here. Mm. Now, in essence, the carnage has been in the airline industry. And tourism, yeah. Yes, and tourism. And, 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 and what you refer to as the mice industry. Yes. You know, the meetings, meetings incentives, incentives uh, conferences, conferences and, and, and exhibitions. Yeah. Yep. Now, I want to go back to the star in the show. 
right. the Ethiopian Airlines. Yes. Now, it, the beauty of it is building that, you know, they say if you want to um, make money now, mm. you know, uh, gamble. If you want to invest money in five years, yeah. put it in the stock exchange. Mm. If you want to make money in 10 years, uh, plant trees. But mm. if you want to, you know, make money for 100 years, invest in people. Mm. What is it that they did in order they call it? In, in, and we go back to the one fundamental issue yes. I think holds Africa together and yeah. the problems of Africa, the issue of education. Yes. What lies in, 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 um, in Ethiopian planning and logic that yeah. then enabled them yeah. to then be able to ride the wave that well? Yeah. First of all, it's just in what Ethiopia... Ethiopians are very special people. Okay. They are stubbornly proud of who they are. They don't make a mistake about it. They don't call themselves Africans. They call themselves Ethiopians. Yes. They are proud of who they are. You can't do anything to make them feel smaller than you. Number two, remember, just for context, Ethiopian Airlines is 100% owned by the government of Ethiopia. Yes. 100%. But they have grown most so impressively over the past 15 years to the point, as we said, Bali International Airport its own landing ground in Ethiopia is now Africa's largest by volume that it can carry. It, it, has, it has developed from that level to the point that even in 2020, when airlines were declaring filing for bankruptcy, Ethiopian airlines were still profitable. Let's repeat that. Yes. Even in 2020, when airlines all over the world were filing for bankruptcy and some of them shutting down, and Ethiopian Airlines was profitable. Yeah. How did they do it? When they realized that COVID was shutting down the world, they said, no, wait a minute, there's movement that's going to be required. People are going to be moving from this area to that area. So we will only shut down when we know the world has shut down. So they were able to transport people even out of China, to places where, because people were stuck in China. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they transformed some of their airplanes into cargo airplanes. Because they said, well, if we're going to need to move masks around, sanitizers, we're going to need to move a lot of equipment to treat people, we're going to need airplanes. So we can shut airplanes for travel, but we can't shut airplanes for transporting medication and vaccines. So they converted immediately most of their airplanes to cargo airplanes. They, they took out the seats and they became cargo. So they continued to fly and move merchandise and move vaccines. And, and, and if you remember Jack Ma, Alibaba was one of the people who donated PPE to Africa. And that's how they were transporting. So they were able to do that. But if we go back to even further before it became known as Ethiopian Airlines, all they did, or oh, they hire locals, use Ethiopians to run. And they have their own training academy. So their pilots are trained, and ongoing training for the cabin staff is happening in Ethiopia. The other thing they do is they make sure that there's no political interference. There's a story I heard. I can't give you the details because I didn't hear it from the source. Yeah. But that when the CEO of Ethiopian Airlines was recruited by Meles Zenawi, mm -hmm. he turned him down. And Meles said, man, what's your problem? Meles is the former, the late prime minister yes. who was responsible for the growth and transformation program and making Ethiopian Airlines what it is. So he went back to him and said, hey, man, Mr. Prime Minister, 
I'm turning you down because I know what's going to happen. You're going to be making me CEO and you're going to be interfering. Your politicians are going to be interfering. Melazinawi said, if I could guarantee that nobody will interfere, will you take the job? He said, yes, I'll take it. He said, give me a few days. He went back and he gave him an offer and he said, no politician will interfere. The man looked in his eye and said, no politician will interfere, not even you? He said, no, not even I will interfere. So the first day when the plane was supposed to take off, a minister does what ministers do. He arrives late at the airport and he expects he waits to be called by name. The CEO says, we are taking off. The plane takes off on time. The politician goes to the CEO and says, do you know who I am? How dare you leave me on the tarmac? I was there on my way. He says, sir, the plane was supposed to leave at, say, 7.50. Mm-hmm. So he took off at 7.50 sharp. He goes to Melis and says, Melis, this fool left me on, an, on a tarmac because he said, and Melis said, do you know who the CEO of Ethiopian Airlines is? said, yes, that's him. said, well, let him run the airline. Next time you have a plane to catch, arrive on time. That's incredible that. And, and when you think about it, it's, it's that Ethiopians themselves, or as yeah. a country, they yeah. are an interesting case study. Very, country. very interesting case. And um, by the way, what they also did around Bole International Airport, most of the five-star hotels around the Ethiopian the airport in, in Addis Ababa are owned by Ethiopian airlines. So they diversified and started building airline, what is it, in the airport precinct. Because you know how it is. They have a lot of connecting flights, and sometimes you have to sleep over. The layover is seven, eight hours, and it lands at 12 midnight. So they are able to say, oh, check into this hotel. So they invested even in hotels to just diversify. But yeah, they are an interesting crop. If you haven't met Ethiopians, you don't know Africans. No, I, my uh, structurer's lecturer uh, was one of the, is still one of the best people to teach structures around the world, yeah. um, educated in Japan, and he contributed to building one of the longest uh, bridges uh, that go from island to island in, in, in Japan. There so, you go. Um, I, I know them very well. Now, talking about that, um, I'm a probably younger than I am now, mm. uh, sitting <laughs> in a consulting company. And at that point in time... You still had hair. <laughs> I've always not had hair. But we're sitting there, and I'm sitting with the then Dr. Tinas Basson. Yeah. And he says to me, I need you to help me with something. And, and he says, you know, I'm an African guy, and I'm working in this place, but I want somebody to work with who's African who can mm. be able to work with these things. Mm. Mm. And he says, and I said, what is the project? He says to me, well... Um, we're going to dam up, dam up the Blue Nile. So Dr. Tinas Basson is one of the... So all text books that relate to water yeah. and water supply right. uh, in South Africa, the most latest ones, are written by Dr. Tinas Basson. So okay. he used to, I used to work with him. Mm. Now I'm going, Tinas, mm. and he never went around with the title. I said, Tinas, mm. you're going to do what? Yes. And he <laughs> says, I'm going to dam up the, 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 uh, uh, the Blue Nile. Wow. And I said you are applying for World War III. Mm. And I said, I am not getting involved with this project of yours. But being inquisitive as I am, I get involved. Yeah. Now, one of the case studies in this book yeah. is the GED. Yeah, the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam. Yes. Yeah. The Blue Nile, Nile has two tributaries. Yes. 
So the white Nile that comes through from Uganda and the blue Nile that comes from Ethiopia. Yeah. I am told the blue Nile contributes over 60% of the eventual river Nile as it flows through Sudan because the two Niles meet just outside Khartoum in Sudan. And then they flow through Sudan, through Egypt, into the, into the, into the sea. So what Meles Zenawi yes. did was to do exactly that. Got an Italian company and they were going to build this dam. Well, they built the dam on, on, on the River Nile to produce power, hydropower. And you know renewable energies, clean energy. Hydro is one of the cleanest. And because it's the river, you, you, you get, you, you're not using any, any you, you turn the turbines yes. using the force of the river. So they built it. It has been completed. But yes, the World War Three part is because the river flows through Sudan and it flows through the, the, the Egypt. Yes. And so there is something called the Nile Basin Accord, yes. which was signed in 1929, I think, with Britain leading the way. And it gave the rights to Egypt, which is downstream country, and Sudan, the right of use of, of the river Nile. Victor, you need to bring everybody on board. This thing was one of the most perplexing things in this book that I read. Yeah, exactly. How does a little island yeah. near Europe yeah. decide who owns what along the river Nile in, in, in Africa's in, in countries? It was the way... Uh, what, was the, what came before that? I actually yeah, it was, was, it was struggling with what it was, came it before that. It was British that. imperialism. I mean, they were building the British Empire, so... Egypt as an ally of Britain and Sudan as the ally of Britain were supposed to benefit. Look, Britain fought wars in Falkland Islands, yes. over Falkland Islands with Argentina, which is very far from the UK. So they have always owned people's land and they have done it very effectively. That's why you and I are speaking English. And, and <laughs> so they were doing the Nile River Basin Accord to protect their allies and there's nothing wrong with protecting rivers downstream, of course. Yes. It's chaotic if you don't manage the filling of the dam. But what Melis Zinawi said, he looked at the Nile River Basin Accord as a 1929, before even World War II. I'm not interested in that. I'm going to do what's good for Ethiopia. There's high rainfall up here. The rivers are flowing and they, the water is, water is just running downstream. So I'm going to build it. I'll fill it responsibly to make sure that we never stop the flow of the river but I will fill it anyway. And to date, they have been filling up the dam. Egypt has been threatening to go to war. And President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has said anybody who touches Ethiopia, Egyptian water will pay for it. They say, well, it's not Egyptian water when it's in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. So you see now, that's why I'm saying Ethiopians are the most stubbornly confident people. Because they say, we understand that you need the water and we'll never stop the river mm -hmm. so it stops flowing. Because in fairness to Egypt, the River Nile is part of their history, their heritage, their culture, their tourism. So the idea is not, and they should never, Ethiopia should never be allowed. But they are filling the dam. They are already exporting power to Djibouti, to South Sudan. This is hydropower, yes. to parts of Kenya, I think. And they, wanna, they think they will produce about 6,000 megawatts of hydroelectricity. And they will be the exporter of energy in, in East Africa. So I do not think anybody will go to war. You remember Donald Trump, yes. when he was president, said Egypt will blow up the dam. Nobody's going to blow up the dam. But the essence of it is that it's a huge infrastructure project, and it has 
much as I don't like to see the prospects of war or regional conflict, I'm sorry, I'm pleased that one African country stood to the mighty British Empire and said, we will do what is good for our country. I wish every country in Africa had the guts to do that. One of the most interesting things about this feud is maybe with my knowledge of what do they call it, of DEMS, because when I qualified, I qualified as a DEMS engineer, um, is that when you're building a, what do they call it, th th there is no ecological reason for you to dam up a, 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 a dam completely. Mm. So you build what's called a bypass. Yes. So the water never stops flowing. At never. All. Never. Never. And, 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 and it's only limited flow yeah. during the time when now you are filling the dam. Exactly. And even that, you do it responsibly because at every height, mm. there's another bypass. So yeah. you close the bypass on the bottom. Yes. You, you know, constantly, you load, until you get to a point where the water flows over the sluice. There gate. you go. What is the level of lack of understanding or maybe is it the question of sovereignty? There isn't a lack of understanding. Okay. Because when the dam was supposed to be, it was a $6 billion dam. Do you know it was not financed by the World Bank or the IMF or any of that? Because they said, hey, you are going to disrupt the ecosystem downstream, so we can't finance this. Ethiopians said, cool. You know we have 100 million Ethiopians. Yeah. So we're going to get crowd financing to finance. And that's how they did it. Yes, they raised 3.8 billion. Exactly. They raised 3.8 billion. And then the world realized, oh, my goodness. And that's where maybe the world is annoyed because... Most African countries, when the World Bank said we want finance, the Moody's will say we will give you a triple junk status. Mm -hmm. They will step back. They said, no, it's okay. We understand. We can't fight you to give us your money. But we have 100 million Ethiopians. Mm -hmm. We can raise $3.8 billion, which is close to, it was then, I mean, it was a four-point billion, whatever the budget. So it was not, it was actually over 75% they were able to raise from Ethiopians themselves. I have pictures somewhere of, the, the politicians campaigning to raise money for they were sitting under trees in most rural areas of Ethiopia and they raised the money. What's stopping us in Africa because we have stock fells, we have savings club, we have all these kinds of things where our money is going into banks. We can take our own destiny into our own hands. And that's why I'm saying power to the Ethiopians. I'll take that to the bank. All I need is $10 billion, uh, uh, $10 billion so yeah. to build the, the, the first phase of the Soweto line. So I'll take that to the bank and I'll tell them I'm going to get the money from what do they call it, yeah. uh, from crowdfunding it locally. Yeah. Now, it works. Having understood all of that, there is a core argument that goes with all of this that says a lot of South African companies have failed commercially in what do they call it in 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 West Africa everywhere else yeah um, you know simple things such as fast moving consumer goods yeah um, yeah. as recently as 2019 uh, I was in Lagos mm. on the plane I'm talking to somebody where are you going no I'm going to Johannesburg what are you going to do there mm. they're coming to shop in Woolworths yes here in South Africa which failed in Nigeria which failed in Nigeria now I guarantee you, after having been in Lagos, I'll tell you, going to Nigeria is not for sissies. So you, no. you, you, even no, just not. emotionally, you, you, you are not prepared for what you're going to see. When but you once, you, once you've adapted, you love Nigerians, right? No. It, it, they, are, they are the simplest people to do business with. They, the way they talk about what needs to be done is it's now it's going to happen. If you love entrepreneurship, yes. if you love resilience, 
if you love the can do never say die attitude you'll love nigerians in nigeria now you as a proponent of africa and africa bouncing back mm. what do you say to somebody who's listening to us right now and saying but Shoprite went to, uh, um, to, to, to Nigeria and they walked out with their tears yeah. between their legs. Yes. Always went there. Yeah, and but they... Shoprite, Shoprite, no. Let me tell you, the first Shoprite I went into yeah. outside of South Africa was in Kampala okay. in 2007. And I was shocked because I went into this Shoprite. You know how it is when you see a brand you know in a foreign place, you walk into it by default. You understand? If you are in a rural area and you see a fast food brand, you might even pass the local restaurants and go into the fast food brand because there's a familiarity about it. So I'm in Kampala. I, I naturally default towards... Yeah, what do you know? ShopRite. I'm a proud South African. I get in here, but I'm looking at these prices and they don't make sense to me. It's just too expensive. Yeah. Too expensive. So I walk out there with a bunch of grapes, but mm. they cost, at the time in 2007, what would have been an equivalent of 220 rand. Ooh. So that's all I walked out with. Yeah. And I then realized that the problem was that most of the South African retailers are moving a lot of goods from South Africa, exporting them into their outlets in other African countries. And, and that brings me to an interesting question. Yeah. And, 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 and in, in me reading the book, yeah. eventually that's one of the things that probably when you know, the book gets its, what do they call it, it's, it, it's 50 year anniversary, you would need to bring back. And yes. at that point in time, we'd have some backup on the implementation of the Africa sure. uh, Continental Free Trade Agreement. Sure. Yes, yes, of course. Now, how do you reconcile this need for us to be able to say, okay, we have indigenized in one place. So indigenization, yes. or BEA, or all of its brothers that are, and the names that are used all around, what do they call it, around the continent. Yeah. Indigenization and, and, and what do they call it, and econ local economic empowerment. Mm. And I am always, I'm saying, I'm a South African company. I have already spent quite a lot indigenizing, yeah. in what do they call it, in, um, in, the, in, in, in the local market where I'm from. Yes, yes. Now, with the Africa Free Trade Agreement, couldn't we have centers where stuff gets produced? Yes. So instead of now trying to force more indigenization, because the biggest challenge about what you saw with, what do they call it, with, with, with shop right there, is that everything that gets imported yes. is levied with, 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 what do they call it, with, 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 uh, um, is levied. Import and duties. Import yeah. duties. So, so, and so, it gets delayed at the ports. Yes. And the cost, just the cost of transporting from here to there will make it impossible to price it reasonably. And now with us connecting the dots, mm. do we actually have a part of the Africa Free Trade Agreement that starts talking to the fact that could we start setting up, you know, knowledge centers and centers of excellence mm. in producing particular rather than trying to indigenize everywhere? Well, it doesn't even need anything in the Africa Continental Free Trade Area Agreement. It needs the retailers. You know, you know, Massmart here does it. Yeah. Massmart will farm, will buy from farmers in in rural areas. Yeah. Woolworths itself, to its credit, in South Africa, does that. It promotes farming, local farming, yeah. and it will get small farmers. In Ethiopia, Starbucks yeah. has. 
farmer development centers where they teach farmers to produce the coffee beans so that they can be meeting, they can meet the standards of the international chain that they are. So they do it in Rwanda, they do it in, I think, Uganda, which is another coffee-producing country, Tanzania as well. So you can still be a global brand, but at least find a way of taking the value chain and sharing it with the region where you are producing. There's no justification, be it commercial or cultural or moral, for somebody to try and move milk, dairy products from here, in cold storage, which costs a lot of money and takes a lot of energy. When Ethiopia and, and Ugandans are able to produce milk, they have a one-cow policy that they had where they gave farmers cattle that can produce 30 liters of milk per day. I say, rather, go and get your knowledge center and go and work with those farmers. Check their milk, whether it meets your phytosanitary requirements. If not, help them to meet those phytosanitary standards so that you can buy local milk. It will just give your brand a lot more equity. It will give you moral high ground. In the ESG, the reporting framework or sustainable reporting framework that we are into, it will make you a lot more sustainable business. So the tail between the legs that you're referring to is because they tried, among other things, to import too much. But let's not also create the impression that it's only South African retailers that are failing. Uchumi failed. It's a Kenyan brand. Nakumat is a Kenyan brand. It failed. And Carrefour is there now. Is doing some work. Shoprite has taken some of the operations out there. So retail is a very difficult business, as you know. You it's need to move your stock. You need to make sure freshness is not threatened. You need to manage shrinkage. You need to manage logistics and all that. So part of it is that they were importing too much into the country. But part of it is also just that retail is tough. Remember, shopping markets, shopping centers are no longer in vogue. People are going online. And you saw it in South Africa. It took our retailers more than a year of COVID for them to master the e-commerce. That shows you just that leadership of these multinationals sometimes can take too long to make adaptations. And that's how they fail. But we still have to talk about the fact that, well, with probably with the uh, Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement, mm -hmm. then a lot of these impediments will, what do they call it? Yeah. But I want to take you back to the beginning of the book. Right. Where you talk about the Francophone, <laughs> the, the Lusophone, then, okay. <laughs> and the Anglophone. Rumble issues. in the jungle. Rumble in the jungle. Now, mm -hmm. you, this thing needs to be implemented. It's a beautiful policy. It took 20 years to actualize. Mm. That is painful to me. Uh, something that would benefit the continent as a whole so much. Yeah. What gives you the logic that it will easily be implemented and, and it will actually um, have the spin-offs you're talking about in this book? Because anybody, anybody, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to everybody on, mm. online, mm. anybody who wants to do business in Africa needs to understand the complexities. Yeah. And uh, Victor does not answer your questions, but he makes you aware of the issues and what do they call it, and the remedies that you could actually try. Show your possibilities. But, it's not going to be easy. Yes. Easy is not the adjective I would put to anything you do on the continent. Nothing is easy in my country as it is, right? Yeah. So I don't expect anything to be easy. But then, of course, if it's easy, then anybody can do it. Then, So we, we are not going to have it easy, but at least 
we are now aware we have signed the contract. So it means people who are doing business can start demanding to be treated differently. And like I'm saying, I'm not head in the, in the clouds kind of writer. I'm saying, that's why I gave you the example of Robex, yes. that Bait Bridge, which is the mo- one of the most important corridors in Africa, is the Cape to Cairo route. Yes. And it goes through Zimbabwe, it goes through Zambia, it goes through Tanzania, to, to into Egypt. I can be sure that when this job, which is a 200 million or so job, million dollar job that is done in Bait Bridge, people who travel from Zimbabwe into South Africa and vice versa will find it a lot easier to travel, which means if you're moving cargo, you will also find it easier because there will be more lanes. As long as we keep on building the capacity, the logistical and infrastructural framework to make the movement of people and movement of goods possible, we are getting there. Of course, some of it is just sheer policy that you should decide you want to let people to move into your country with relative ease. In fact, that's what every African country should do. Let everybody in, but do it legally. That's how Rwanda does it. Rwanda says, if you have a legitimate passport from anywhere in the world, we will let you into Rwanda. But guess what? We know where you live. So when you enter this country, we ask you to fill out a form about where you live. Mm -hmm. We ask you when you are leaving. They trust their ability to enforce the laws so they can let anybody in who has a passport. Once you come in legally, we know who you are. We have your fingerprints. If you engage in criminal activities while you're in the country, we can track you down because we have on our database your picture, the latest. We have your passport. We know where we can look for you. We can have cross-check. So the problem with countries that close out foreigners is they close out the borders, but they open illegal channels to get in. So eventually we have foreigners in the country that we don't know the identity of, we don't know their whereabouts, we don't have their fingerprints. So if they engage in criminal activities, we don't have a way of tracking them down. So that's where I'm saying the movement of goods is a major part of this African free trade area. Because tourism is one of the biggest and the easiest way to spin economy. So I'll give you an example. If you're on the border of South Africa and Zimbabwe, and there's a restaurant on the South African side, and you make it easy for Zimbabweans to come from Zimbabwe into South Africa, you can charge them $30 in visa fees, or you can leave them and let them come through into the South African side. That $30 that you're going to charge them for the visa, they'll pay for a bottle of wine. They're still going to order a meal, they're still going to wash their cars. They're still going to tip the waiters. They're still probably going to decide, well, it's too late. We're going to check into the local B&B. So I would rather get the $1,000 per traveler than try and charge them $30 for a visa fee. That's how you make the movement of people, the driver of tourism. And they can come in and out, but I'm happier for them to not pay the visa fee, but to come in and spend money in my country. I like this idea. Because there, where the Chobe River comes into the Limpopo, uh, you can be in three countries at the same time. During oh, yeah, the, the four dry, corners. Yeah. Yeah, the, during the dry season, you can stand there yeah. and be in, in, in all four countries at the same time. There you go. Now, probably I'll build a restaurant there so that you can go say, I ate in four countries yeah, at the same time. in four time. countries at the same time. <laughs> at the same time. Now, having understood that, we got to go back to the fact that the fundamentals of Africa are different. Yeah, but you, you wanted to talk about French versus... Yes. Oh, uh, we're yes. not going to let that oh, one yes. go. So now with, we don't us, let that one. with us having all of these, let's say, the past that we have, Yes. 
the colonial past that we have and we shouldn't just gloss over it. No. Now, how easy is it going to be for us to actually just simply say, I'm going to let go of, you know, what is ECOWAS, what is a community of East African countries, uh, the SADC region, um, the, you know, the, the more northern Arabic countries yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. they are blocked there. Are they? Yes. Now, these super blocks themselves... I'm not just going to let go just like that. And I'm giving you an example. Look at the, other, the video from the other day uh, here in Gallagher. Yes. The fighting. <laughs> Scandalous. Uh, the fighting. Uh, I mean, here are Africans. Yes. Slaves who have been freed up. Okay, it's not going to be easy. So you have slaves who have been freed. Yes. And they are fighting instead of making progress about pan-African parliamentary issues. They are fighting one another over who used to be your slave master. So, hey, your slave master was better than mine or vice versa. And they are willing to fight all oh, these Francophone countries, all oh, these Anglophone countries. It was so scandalous. It was so embarrassing to watch. But what was happening is exactly what I talk about in the book, mm -hmm. that the UK has its own British Commonwealth. These are countries that used to be British colonies or protectorates. And are they proud of being former colonies of Britain? They are so proud that they respond better when the queen calls them to a chogum, the, the Commonwealth Heads of Governments meeting. Yes. They respond better to that than when they are called by their own neighbors. The same with the French-speaking countries. So, hey, the Zimbabweans love their own levels. The, the Nigerians love their education in London. Eh? They love their Baker Street. They love to shop at Harrods. They love to have their parties in England. That's okay. The Congolese love to have their French parties and they do whatever. And that's okay. That's part of our history. But hang on, man. Do not now become a pawn in this slugfest between the UK and France. Because those two countries are fighting for control of the world. Mm -hmm. So they must not use us. That's all I'm saying. So if you look at Emmanuel Macron, he didn't come into South Africa because he loves South Africa. He came into South Africa because he understood the significance of President Cyril Ramaphosa. But he also understood the, inf understood the influence of South Africa in Mozambique, where Total, a French company, was being threatened with the Al-Shabaab, yes. the unrest in the Cabo Delgado. So what I'm saying is, when a politician, a European politician, travels, they are doing that to protect the business interests of their native country uh, companies, right? That's all we must do. We should say, yes, we're happy to help you advance your goals because international collaboration is the way we go. Globalization is about that. But do not use us to fight your battles like we were now fighting. In so I'm just making the reader aware that there is that level of competition. It's happening at a diplomatic level. So you're never going to see them fighting like they did here. When Emmanuel Macron meets Boris Johnson, they will be very civil. But when Francophone Africans meet Anglophone Africans, they do what we saw in Midrand, even if they are supposed to be honorable members of parliament. Now, that's scandalous. And I'm saying, leave the UK and France to fight their battles. The same thing I say with the US fighting China. The US is fighting China. They end up saying Huawei is stealing state secrets from the US. Absolute fabrication, because they never have been able to prove that. But in the process, 
They go out and say, if you are China, and Huawei was overtaking Apple at that time to become the number two seller behind another company, South Korean Samsung. Donald Trump hated that so much that he was happy to make up the stories and then make it difficult for anybody who uses Huawei to install any American app on there. Google, Facebook. He was almost saying, if you're using that Chinese company, you can't have an American software. Now, how is that for free trade? How is that for the leader of the free world? How is that for market economics, market-driven economics? All of a sudden, a politician dictates what I can do in Africa with my phone that I bought with my own money. So I'm saying, when they're fighting themselves for domination, to dominate the world, they must fight it and do it, but they must not involve us. And African countries must be careful to not be unwilling or unknowing pawns in these battles because i lived in the 80s here and i know that angola used to have a civil war mozambique had a civil war and those wars were not about liberation of africa it was about the ussr the soviet union fighting america america was saying we're stopping the spread of communism the ussr was trying to spread its own influence so i'm saying knowing how fatal these battles can get we should not be allowed to be pawns I like that idea, and, and you, you put it rightly so. We should not, it, as you say, we should not be the ones who pick a side. Mm. But what we should do is ensure that as we do so, we do it knowing yeah. uh, what is to our benefit in doing so. Yes. And that's from, from the book exactly. Now, and that's, to... why, that's why I like Rwanda, <laughs> you know. I like Paul Kagame, because yeah. what Paul Kagame did, he went and joined the French Commonwealth, La Francophonie, and he went and joined the British Commonwealth. Because he says, I don't choose them. If they can help my country, I'm going. So he's one of the few countries that are members of both La Francophonie and the British Commonwealth. And here's the funny thing. He wasn't colonized by either France or the UK. It was a Belgian protectorate. Before that, it was Germany. But he shows you that he understands nobody's going to dictate to me because I speak French in my country and I speak English. I will belong to both of them. I want to get to the questions that I have here. Yeah, um, sure, let's they, do that. They, There's hundreds of them. But <laughs> oh my goodness, okay. <laughs> but let's, I want, I, I, I want to just go past a point, and, and which is very important in, the, what they call it, in, in, in our conversation today. Mm. Um, because eventually, Africa's retail space is actually on, you know, small players, you know, the people who sell in the streets. Yes, um, the informal the traders. The informal traders. Mm. Now, in addition to that, is Africa is highly unbanked. Yes. Now, the, the, the appearance and the growth of, what do they call it, of, 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 of fintech, yes. gives me hope in that space. I met a young man, I think he, from, he was from uh, Guinea or some, somewhere there, yeah. and what he was explaining to me was, quite an interesting uh, uh, space. He's mm. part of the top 30, under 30. Ah, right, by uh, Forbes. Yes, yeah. um, by Good. Forbes. And, and, and what he has done, in his, in his country, the postal services collapse. Mm. They have no banking system. Where is he from? I'll, I'll remember the name of yeah. the country. And okay. the, 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 he took over the postal service. Right. He created a fintech app that sits on top of that. Yeah. That allows local curio uh, sellers mm to sell to anybody around the there world and also put up their wares on what they call it on, on, on the app. Yeah. 
and at the same time get remittance yeah. for anything, and then uses the he has now re, reju, rejuvenated the postal office, yeah. the, the, the postal offices to then be able to allow them to courier stuff to anywhere around the world, That's any cure you could order. They call it. That's now it. I sat there and I, I was looking at this young man and thinking. That's e-commerce textbook. <laughs> Yes, and, and, and you know, in Zulu they say, yeah, you know, struggling sure. makes you much more wiser. Yeah, yeah. And, 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 and I thought, wow, in a space like that, I will remember the name of the country. And, yes. and, and it, I thought, wow, this is just incredible too. Now, FinTech in itself, South African banks cartel fear it and they have been trying to do their own things in the background and all of that. I think it is the hope for Africa. It is the hope for Africa. Goodness, I mean, are you kidding me? They, they, I'm proud. I'm a proud user of Yoko. Okay. You know the blue, the, the blue, the uh, blue point of sale device. It's yes. a South African breakthrough. But you know of Mpesa. Yes. In fact, the real countries where fintech succeeds are the countries where banking was poor. When Kenya started Mpesa, and and the beauty of it is Mpesa was started by Safaricom which is a British company, effectively. It was owned by Vodafone. But, Victor, give a bit of statistics. You know, if yeah. you haven't read the statistics of yeah. how Africa is unbanked, yes. you so, do not understand the role of exactly. fintech in, in exactly. the growth of So Africa. when Kenya started, 70% of people who should have had a bank account, 70% did not have a bank account. In, in Tanzania, they even did a survey and they asked people and they found that 25% of people did not even know what a bank account was. Now, if you look at Safaricom today, you talk about statistics. More than 65% of its financial performance, of its financial growth, is coming from the tens of millions of Mpesa clients that they are servicing. So they still have a Safaricom call, airtime, people calling and what. But the, the, the value of that is diminishing so much, not only on the volume and the revenue side, but also on the profitability, the earnings side of it. So the, the unbanked, the in, in, and, and with cybercrime now becoming a bigger problem, because we, we are going to have to look at that. We're going online, but we are not protected as, as we should be. So fintech is exactly that, that over 60% of most of Africa was unbanked. And it changes every day, of course. And the, the winners are going to be people who can provide access to affordable connectivity and data that is, that is cheap. That's interesting because it, the statistics says the, the revenue at, at, at Safaricom mm. has gone up by 16% yeah. year on year because yeah. of Mpesa. Because of Mpesa. Because what happened is people who never had a bank account never need a bank account now. Yes. They don't need a bank account. And just to illustrate, I went to the website of an airline in Kenya mm -hmm. and I was looking at what they accept as methods of payment. You know, in South Africa, if you don't have a credit card, oh. you can struggle to book an airline or to book a, to rent a car. Yes, and they'll still want the credit card. They'll the, still want the, the credit card. At yeah. the airport when you get yeah. there. Even if you show them cash. Yes. Even if you show them you have a debit card with... 400,000 rand in it, and the car is 4,000 to hire for seven days. They will still want a credit card. Yes. So now that's when you are so straight-jacketed that even an opportunity, cash is staring you in the face. Every business person will tell you, cash is king. Mm. The day I collect cash for what service I've rendered, I'm happy. But you're showing them cash. Mm. No, they don't want it. They want you to go through the system. This system, this airline was saying, we accept the following forms of payment. Mm -hmm. M-Pesa, mm -hmm. Electronic funds transfer, 
and cash. So cash and credit cards were at the they bottom. They were secondary to... They were at the bottom. M-Pesa was first. That's what happens when you, when you... So eventually, people who never thought they would be able to bank are now... And, and when I heard the, central, the former central banker of Kenya talk, mm. he said the reason we were forced to do M-Pesa the way we did it was, one, banks would like to say, no, your customer. So they want to know, because they like to repossess things, you know, when you don't pay. So they want to know where they can find you if you don't pay. The, the address, physical address. Yeah. And for that, they want you to give them a statement of water and lights to show rates and taxes. You are paying this and your name appears on it. Now, the slums in, 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 in Nairobi yeah. of Kibera, yeah. we think we know the slums. Yeah, yeah no, we don't know. We don't. So they, and he says, we looked at these people and said, how do you ask somebody from Kibera to give you a water and lights account? No, how do you ask somebody for a water and lights account in Alex? Exactly. You can't. Yes. Because chances are they are in the back room, there are five, six, seven of them, and the person who pays the rates and taxes is living in another town or city. So they said, but we realized that the one thing that nobody ever loses, that when the phone is there, the person will be there. Yes. So if we can get the details of their cell phone and tie whatever we need to their cell phone, we've got the answer. Because have you seen a man losing his cell phone, how quickly he moves back to get it? <laughs> so he's not, nobody's going to be away from their cell phone for a number of minutes. So because we know everybody will always have their cell phone and if they lose it, they will replace it in 24 hours. If we know your cell number and we know where the cell phone is, we have your know your customer cleared. As long as, Victor, you remember, our recovery of lost and found goods in the how train is 99.9%. I have, I have lost something on the how train and I've recovered it. So There I you go. As long as and you it was a everybody. wallet. So, <laughs> and it was and a the wallet. money was still there. The money was still there. All right. Yeah. As long as you, you, you tell those good stories <laughs> no, I, about I did. <laughs> I, I, I just told So you. there's a question here. It says, your undying optimism for Africa, where does it come from and uh, what do you attribute it to? Because that's all I have. Africa is all I have. That's it. That's the simplest answer. I don't have a British passport. I don't have a Portuguese passport. I don't have an American passport. I don't want it, actually. That's all I have. But secondly, I know my history. I don't know as much of my history as I know. But I know that the toughest, the most ingenious, the most ingenious people come from this continent. I know the Queen Nehanda of, yeah. of Zimbabwe. I know about the Nzinga of Angola. I know about Wangari Matai. Mm -hmm. I know about the lion of the desert, Mo Omar Mokhtar of Libya. I know how he gave Benito Mussolini a run around in the desert for years, 20 years at the age of 70. I know about Patrice Lumumba. I know about Thomas Sankara. I know that civilization came from this continent. I know we are the cradle of humankind. It's just that we were taught otherwise, and we were beaten until we accepted that we are not worthy. Now, hey, I have discovered that I am worthy. And because I know that, and I know I can't go anywhere and I don't want to go anywhere, the only way I can believe in this continent is to go and look for stories. Remember, I'm not making up anything here, and I'm not making up anything in Africa is open for business. And I've been to 30 African countries, so I know what I'm talking about. When I say Nigerians are the most entrepreneurial, the most God-fearing, the most resilient people you will come across on the continent. I don't talk about Nigerians you see in South Africa. There's nothing wrong with most of them, but the real Nigerians, more than 150 million of them, I saw in Nigeria. And when you go and you interact with people like that, and you see what they're doing, and you look at how much Africa has been put through, Africa has been hit by slave trade, 
colonial repression, wars, disease, corruption, strong men who don't want to leave office, and it's still standing. Man, what more do I... How, what is there to me not optimistic about? Me, I don't start these things. I only take them forward. This one I'm taking. It's all I have. Yeah. Yes. It's um, all I have. It's all I have. Um, the new scramble for Africa. Yes. China versus U.S. Let's not fall into that trap of becoming... The, the question says, gone. should Africans be concerned? Yes, we should. Because if you have the African Union headquarters in Ethiopia being built by, donated by the Chinese, and then you get... You know the lifts in that building at one point were speaking Mandarin. You know, you walk into these lifts and they say... And then they were not speaking in any language that people could understand. But of course, if you are a man who's happy to let another man build your house... Will you be surprised if he decides what to take out of your household? You can't. So we should be worried, especially because we have everything. I gave the example of Ethiopians, how they crowd-financed the building of the biggest dam in the Southern Hemisphere. And they did it by going into the villages and getting people to finance. When you have our pride, we should. So, yes, we can take some investment from China because they have a lot to offer and teach the world. America has a lot to teach the world. The Europe, Australia, India, all these people have to help us. But here's the clincher. They have to help us on our terms. That's all. I like that. Um, we've just experienced massive losses due to recent looting. Can we bounce back? We have already bounced back. I mean, Mike Nkuna, my role model yes. in property, the, the guy who built, Masingita. among other things, Masingita property, yes. he built Jablani Mall, yes. and he built uh, the other mall, I forget, in Soweto here too, yeah. the, around Protea. He also built the, the mall in... In Guiani. In Guiani. I mean, he's got properties all yes. over. He's got Masingita Heights in Morningside. Yes. One Just of the here. most beautiful mixed-use developments that you can ever see. Yes. He's already, he said he will be getting those properties back in two months, I think. He said something like that. So we can bounce. We don't have an option. You see, that's the thing. If you are where we are as South Africans, we don't have an option. We have reached the bottom. We can only go up. But it's in us. We, we have to stop giving politicians too much power. We have to stop giving business people too much power also. Because I don't trust politicians. I don't trust business people. I trust artists. So we should know the truth. Artists will teach you the truth. Business people can create jobs for you, true. Yes. They can help the economy to grow, great. They can bring entrepreneurship, but often they get short-sighted and greedy, often. They have to learn to be moderated by us. We should teach business people, if they are greedy, that they won't get our support. Politicians, same story. They are very good when they run in countries because we need law and order. We are a constitutional state. But when we give them too much power, that we allow them to not build roads and they go past us in blue lights and we never hold them to account, then we have ourselves to blame because we are creating these problems for ourselves. So we can bounce back. We have already bounced back. There's a question here, and that one I'll say to the order they call it. It says, uh, let's look at the good news in Africa, Rwanda, Ethiopian Airlines, and uh, Kenyan Airways, and, and all of that. And I'll say to the person who asked the question, by the book, you will yeah. not, uh, order they call it, you will not, uh, uh, you, you will not regret. Yeah. You, it, it's all in the book uh, yeah. uh, on, on, on that one. But yeah. um, 
Any quick thoughts on, on, on Africa's, telling Africa's good news stories? Because it is in I the do. book and that's exactly what you do. That's what I'm doing. And that's why, again, I, I hope you are playing the song Africa Bounces Back. This is the only book I know that has a rap song produced to go with it. And the young man who produced it is someone I know. Yes. Someone in my family. He's a rapper. He's a big on finance, by the way, yes. graduate from University of Pretoria, but he is also a, a rapper. So I said to him, look at this book and tell me if it's something that inspires you enough yeah. to be able to produce a rap song about it. And he, he produced something that knocked me out. The lyrics, I thought, my goodness, if I could tell a story in 15, 25 lines, I would not need to write 450 pages or maybe I'll be more effective. So telling the good news story, and we must do it tenaciously and consistently. So here's how it works. I work in the media. Most producers of television programs, most editors of newspapers and magazines, when they decide what they're going to cover, especially the broadcast media, will go onto Twitter and check what's trending. Mm. Now, but what's trending is Kim Kardashian, the young American woman who's famous for being famous and is wealthy because of that. And then there is Lil Wayne. Then there is Donald Trump. And then there is, but that's all that's trending. Yeah. And what do they do? They start doing the research to find out more stories about that. And they make that to trend even more. Okay. Now, I say, let's make Africa to trend. When Tsepo is a young engineer who's educated in this country and has become the chief operating officer of the How Train Management Agency and he's doing a good job, let's make him trend as well. Thank you. I hope you can hear that, uh, Aleta. <laughs> uh, Aleta is our social media manager. Ah, let's make Tepo trend. Let's make, let's make, let's make Ethel Mukwele trend as yes. a farmer, or yes. Spewers Tolle as a woman farmer. Let's make Sesfigile Wines in Western Cape, owned by a former teacher, Nondumiso Pikache, trend. Let's make Yoko trend. Yes. I love my people. Mm. The one bit I, what do they call it, I, I, I never climbed on to, and uh, tourism. Mm. Tourism, yeah. It's helping South America get out of the recession. It is. Post-COVID. Yeah. And is there hope for us? In between the bickering about yeah. what money should be spent on what part and what race and all that in terms yeah. of relief. Um, no, no, no. Do we have hope? We have hope, but we are slowed down by corrupt politicians and business people. Okay. I mean, we should never, ever have been where we are, right? But there is hope in the sense that I like the fact that the younger people have taken this vaccination thing very seriously and they have made it fashionable and they've gone out and vaccinated. The vaccine is not perfect, yes. by the way. It's, it will have its own complications. But if that's the only way to get us back to where we can function, let's do it. But I'm not impressed that we are opening the economy fast enough. All right. I, I've, you know, once I had my two jabs, yeah. uh, I made a round trip, uh, Uppington, Kakamas, yeah. yes. uh, Citrus Dal, Sierras, yeah. um, and All then beautiful provinces and in the then, Cape, Yes, but... and then came back through Beaufort West yeah. and stayed in um, uh, Colesburg and then, uh, you know, came back home after wow. that and yeah. uh, as recently as, as last week. So uh, we should... Now, one of the things that you raise in the book that is very important on tourism mm. is the fact that intra-country tourism has proven, and let's dwell yes. a little bit on that, yes. has proven to be the actual recovery point yes. 
for a lot of countries rather than actually external tourism. Yes, and, and this is Statistics SA. So yes. I'm not making, again, I don't make lots of things up. Yes. I'm a storyteller, but I like to tell facts. Yes. And when I analyze, I want to base my analysis on facts. You, you want to frustrate me, argue with me without facts. I get the most frustrated. So Stats SA has numbers that prove that local domestic travelers spend more per person than international travelers. You just told me the round trip you made. Yes. You stopped at restaurants. You stopped at how many filling stations? Everywhere. You stopped into hotels, B&Bs, and you bought curios. You stopped and you had a local beer, whatever, if you have beer, if you do. That's exactly the point. Unlike an international traveler who's going to say, go online and check what is the cheapest point, what is this, what is this, and they will zip in. Yes, they might spend more while they are here, but how many of them do we have? Not enough. Whereas when I travel, I'm from Limpopo, when I travel from here to go and see my mother, I am what, I'm, I'm falling under what they call in, in tourism VFR, visiting friends and relatives. Yes. That's a very important category because, again, I'm going to fill up the car, I'm going to drive, I'm going to stop at a restaurant, have a meal, and when I get there, I'm going to take some of my family to town to go and buy some things. I'm going to get into a restaurant, take the children to a movie, and when I come back, I'm going to go to the local car wash and make the show. If there's entertainment, I'm going to go in and, and, and listen to the band. So let's encourage those travelers because they are here. In fact, here's an example. The Taj Mahal in India. Mm -hmm. It's one of the, most, the world's most premier tourist attractions. You will never outnumber Indians in the Taj Mahal. Never. When you're in the Taj Mahal, you are people from all over the world, but the people who outnumber you the most are the Indians themselves. So they make it cheaper to get into. The same thing with, with Rwanda, when you are at the Gorilla Mountains in Musanze. When you are Rwandese, you don't pay. They, they charge about $1,000 now per person. Yeah. Like imagine getting into the Kruger Park, paying $1,000. That's more than 20,000 rand to just drive in for two, three hours and come back. Yeah. But if you are Rwandese, you pay much less. Now, when you are in Cape Town, do you have prices for locals? You don't. They want to charge me the same they charge an American who's coming here with dollars. That's a, a suicidal move. But we're getting it right. We now have, we now have what's called SADC rates. Uh -huh. So on my free time, yeah. I am a content creator in the tourism industry. Right, there you go. Uh, on behalf of my wife's business. There you go. Um, and we've probably traveled to some of the uh, best places that you wouldn't have accessed yeah. uh, before COVID. So in, in every crisis, there's an opportunity. Yeah, so, I want to see uh, those restaurants in Cape Town do that. I don't believe they have latched on to the SADC rates yet. I, I, not really much the restaurants. And the restaurants themselves have a, a, a challenge of them trying to recover from the lockdown losses mm -hmm. and all sorts of other things. And, and, and that's a bit of, of the challenge that we're sitting with um, in that space. But from an accommodation perspective and what do they call it, and especially the, the, the all-in inclusive uh, hotels, um, they are doing... I think I stay SADC. with family too much. Yes, they, they are doing <laughs> SADC rates. And, 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 and I would encourage all South Africans to, what do they call it, to take on uh, tourism. I'll be honest with you, I have traveled all over the world, but I am humble about how much I have learned yeah. in the last 18 months yes. about my own country. Yes. And how beautiful this place is. And, and I keep on thinking every time I go to another place. I went to a place in... Um, in the Northern Cape, you've probably never heard of it. It's called Rimfast Mac. Yeah. 
It's in the back end past Kakamas. And I always I say know to a lot of people, if you go make it past Kakamas, mm -hmm. you've gone too far. Mm -hmm. Uh, I know uh, Gagamas, I know Prembog, <laughs> I know Kaimos. Yes. So I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Now, when you come off from there, you drive on this 80-kilometer gravel road mm. to make it to this place. It's got hot springs sure. um, coming out of the ground. And now the national parks have made it a, what do they call it, right. a tourism area. And it is worth wow. just the trip alone, making it out there. It's just as gorgeous as... I can never ever, unless, you know, without me having taken as many pictures as I did, yeah. <laughs> I, I have no way of explaining to you the, la the, the landscape in the North No, you can't. And the People should travel there. Yeah. People should travel there. Yeah. Now, I, I am a firm believer in us being able to get uh, uh, South Africa back through. Now, Africa's digitization. Yes. How do we leapfrog the advent of 5G and the 4IR? And maybe the question is, how do we actually use this to actually leapfrog economically and, and actually enable the Africa uh, Continental Free Trade Agreement yeah. to be able to enable? How do we use the digitization, the 5G revolution and the 4IR to be able to uh, enable the, the implementation of the Africa Free Trade Agreement? We campaign to make government leaders and business leaders understand that affordable and fast internet connectivity is like oxygen. Okay. At the moment, even the mobile network operators are getting it wrong. They, they, are not, they haven't figured it out. I'm talking about South African now. They, they still will call you and want to give you an extra contract on top of what you have. They, they, they say we'll make this affordable and what, but, I mean, we're still charging more per mobile, gigamobile, what is it? One gigabyte of mobile data than Somalia. Somalia... You will pay less for one mobile gigabyte of data than in South Africa. That's scandalous. So the business leaders in the telecommunications net framework, the, business, the, the politicians have not figured out that by not making internet affordable and fast and reliable and universal all over South Africa, they are perpetuating income inequality and they are keeping the poor of South Africa, making them even poorer. Okay. Once we have done that and we can create an infrastructure that will connect and not depend on which network you are using, the interoperability, so that we open the freeway and let's do business while we are on the freeways rather than try and charge. At the moment, the mobile networks are charging you a toll fee when you get onto the highway. And they are doing it, they are depriving themselves of the volume that they could make in business if they opened and made most of the services free or cheap and then they will get the volume going on everything will go online you're a man after my own heart i am a firm believer in zero rating certain yeah. uh, particular services transport yeah. should be one of them yeah. accessing a transport app should never yeah. ever should never accessing a health app should never ever have you never have have to pay for it right. and you're going to find that we are able to uh, get achieve more of the, yeah. uh, you know, the uh, sustainable development goals uh, through that. Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. But, Victor, me and you can talk till the cows come home. And, and they have come you, home. You, spoke, you speak about time in an African sense. Uh, <laughs> the cows have come the back cows home. Have, the cows have come back home. And there's just one question here. Are you going to make the book available on audio uh, for the audio they call it, for the uh, visually impaired? Yes. And funny, a young man, a young woman, a friend of mine who's a doctor, has a daughter 
who asked me that question and offered to help. So I will, I will, I will try. I'll try to make it audio. It's reading it as it is, as you know, there are graphs yeah. and what. I, I haven't mastered that art, but it is my intention to do it. Definitely, we we look forward to that. And Victor, first and foremost, uh, as my guest, um, we we can talk about this book. All I can encourage everybody to say that if you want to know more, and you it, not only about doing business in Africa, and 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 in the whole of the continent, or and the Africa Free Trade Agreement, and what it means to you, but us being able to understand and have a much greater appreciation, go and buy this book. From me, I'd like to thank you. Thank you very much for, for being available to order the Ecolet for us at such short, short notice. No, thank you for and, the invitation. Uh, and, and, and in addition to that, uh, I'd like to also thank my, you know, my compatriot uh, viewer for having that much faith in me that I can go through five, four hundred and fifty pages. <laughs> but but <laughs> let's clarify, please. You don't have to read from one page one to page four hundred. You can pick. There are thirty-one chapters here, and you can take any one of them. Yes, that's true. And it's, it's, it's yeah, not a book you read. It's from not a book you read cover to cover because yeah. it's very intimidating. But. Yeah, we Limpopo men are that pompous. We like to write <laughs> And we would like to thank uh, uh, the artist uh, Lesoho Ramato for, you know, the song itself that he has produced about the book. Yeah. Uh, go out there, let's listen to it. Let's make uh, uh, Lesoho a uh, trend. Yeah. Um, Penn Macmillan, the, the publishers, uh, we thank you. And we hope for our long-term uh, vision and what they call it in our partnership, we will always work together. Uh, all the board members that have joined us, um, this platform has become interesting, and even our board members do join us. Wow. Because, so uh, you, you either have, have, have made them very happy or, you know, you've made somebody unhappy out there. Oh, but my goodness. No, no, no. I can't <laughs> afford to upset I think, the I think you've train, done very well, sir. How yeah. train management people. Um, the, our CEO, William Duff, is online. And he's oh, William is there. Oh, hey. Yes, and, 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 yeah. and, and we, you know, <laughs> we will make sure that, he, you know, if he doesn't have a book as yet, uh, you know, this is a book that is worthwhile for every CEO we do they call it in this country? Thank you. Um, and to you, the audience, uh, from me, Sotlolosa Mapulana, Lamatevele, I thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much.